Welcome to the HDFS Careers Podcast, the podcast featuring informal conversations with family science majors about their professional journeys. My name is Erica Jordan. Today, I will be sharing my interview with Dr. Erica Mikowski. I met Dr. Mikowski through a recommendation from Dr. Jacqueline Benson, who connected with me on social media. Thank you for the recommendation, Dr. Benson. Dr. Mikowski is the founder and CEO of Strategically Authentic. Her specialties include strategic planning, leadership development, and project management, just to name a few. She earned an EDD in instructional leadership and andragogy from Lindenwood University. She also earned an MED in educational leadership and policy analysis and a BS in human development and family studies from the University of Missouri-Columbia. In this episode, she shares the story of how she found the field of HDFS and her professional experiences to date. As is true for all interviewees on this podcast, Dr. Mikowski's views are her own as a private citizen and did not reflect the views of her current, former, or future employers. While we were recording this interview, we had a pretty bad storm moving through Houston. And so uh, the connection is a little bit staticky at times, and you can actually hear thunder at some points um, in the interview. Um, I'm sorry about that. Can't help the weather. But um, other than that, it's still a fabulous interview. So I hope that you'll bear with it and enjoy. Without further ado, here's her interview. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mikowski. Thanks, Erica. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to have you, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Sure. Well, go ahead and jump right into it. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first found the field of human development and family studies? Sure. Um, so I did my undergraduate work at the University of Missouri. Uh, I went there for a number of different reasons, and as an out-of-state student, it's pretty common that the out-of-state kids at that time in the early 2000s were going to Mizzou because they wanted to be journalism majors. Mm. It's the number one journalism school in the country, and, and they take great pride in that, and I was a Midwest kid looking for a Midwest fit, and at the time, I thought I wanted to go into journalism. As you can tell by perhaps that I thought phrase, uh, that's not where I landed, um, so I went to the University of Missouri and my first year, my fresh, the summer after my freshman year, I was in, I had a theater minor, so I was in the theater program doing summer repertory theater. While I was there, because of my rehearsal schedule and performance schedule, I had the ability to take a class in the mornings. Okay, great. Based on my, um, general coursework that I needed to complete. An HDFS class happened to fit the schedule that I was taking or that I needed and seemed interesting. And someone that I knew who was an older student said that they had loved this class and so they recommended it to me. So it started because somebody else who was not an HDFS major said that they really loved taking this class as part of their um, general requirements. So I spent that summer in the um, introductory class for HDFS. It was one of the most incredible academic experiences I've ever had for a variety of reasons, Um, not the least of which is I'm a summer birthday and I got to celebrate my birthday at school for the first time in my life and I will never forget that and I tell everyone about that because it's very exciting to have a birthday in July and have students around you. So I took treats to class and everyone loved it. Um, So after that, after that summer, I started my journalism coursework, and there was this realization as I was sitting in class that I was interested in what we were talking about, but I didn't care 
what we were talking about. And I started to kind of process that feeling and think, well, have I cared about anything? Maybe this is just part of the experience. And I kept thinking about the content of that course I'd taken over the summer. So I went to the head of the department for HGFS at Mizzou at the time, who was Marilyn Coleman. And anyone in the HGFS space is probably familiar with that name. Um, so I got to sit down with Marilyn and say, hey, I kind of like this class, what can I do? And so originally I thought that I was going into her office to figure out how to get a minor in HGFS. And I left her office with the paperwork to change my major. So wow. um, Marilyn Coleman is an incredible human to have welcomed me into the field because of the work that she's done and because of the number of publications and between the work that she's done on her own and with her husband, Larry Ganong and all those things, it's, you know, on paper, that seems like a perfect dream from a researcher and statistical standpoint, but as a human, She's also one of the most incredible, passionate humans about the field. So getting to sit down with someone who is incredibly passionate about the space and ask, what do you do with it, lit a fire that I had not anticipated. And um, it really guided me towards not just pursuing that degree, but every professional choice that I've made has roots in that conversation in Marilyn's office all those years ago. Wow. And I mean, it's amazing too, when you meet someone who is um, of that caliber, of that standing in the field, you know, so accomplished in the field and yet, you know, still so down to earth and willing to take the time and spend time with someone who's considering a minor. I mean, you walk out of- Sure, I'm just some low key student. And to, to be very honest, I had no idea who I was talking to, which is common on college campuses, especially as a, you know, early student, an early young undergrad student, I am confident I probably walked in with giant blonde hair, <laughs> glitter on something, probably my eyelids or maybe glitter lipstick. I don't know. I'm certain that I walked into Marilyn's office and she thought, my word. And then she just sat there and listened to me. And she was the first example for me as a student, not even in the HEFS space, but, but in, in the student experience in general, the first example of someone who wanted to hear not just my questions, but my rambling thought process as I was sifting through my own questions. And I treasure that example that she set for me of listening with the intent to support, not the intent to solve. Yes. And that's such a pinnacle representation of what HGFS is about sometimes. And so I didn't know I was getting this master class in HGFS. I really just wanted paperwork. So <laughs> it worked out pretty well for me, I suppose. Yes. I, that's, yeah, that's so well stated. I'm not going to even try to expound on it anymore. <laughs> that it's, yeah, you can easily see how that conversation has stuck with you so long. So you have an amazing first class. Yeah. Um, and you have and, and summer birthday <laughs> celebration. I know, right? <laughs> you have, by the way, um, I had a summer birthday growing up, so I feel your pain on that. Like, it's like- It is a great. funny thing to have feelings about, but I definitely had them. Oh yeah, because you never get the cupcakes in the classroom, you know? Oh, and it's like, it's not even like, I'm not a big birthday person. Like, I don't love to be the center of attention or that sort of thing. Two years ago, before COVID, 
my children thought I wanted to celebrate my birthday at Chuck E. Cheese because oh, wow. what they were certain I wanted to do. And we did, and it was great. But, you know, I'm, so I'm not big about when, you know, when we're growing up and everyone first started using planners, the big trend was to write your birthday in everybody's planner. So everybody knew this is not a trait that I had. I do not document my birthday on other people's calendars, Yes, but, but getting to at least come in with treats and share with someone else this, this day, that's exciting. It, I don't know. It's like a weird, it was, I remember what I took. I took ice cream drumsticks and felt like the hero of the universe because I got to take treats to people in the middle of school, which is not a normal part of your day. It was wonderful. Truly wonderful. Awesome. Yeah. What a silly thing, huh? No, it's not silly. I totally, because mine is <laughs> always like two weeks later. Literally, I just. Oh, no. Every year. <laughs> and so, no, I understand. So you have this amazing introductory introduction into the class, um, the field via this great course. You have yeah. this birthday and you have this amazing conversation with you don't know, but you know, somebody who's a uh, a really heavy hitter in the field decided right. to change your major from journalism. So then what is the rest of your college experience like in terms of your classes? And then what else did you do when you were in college besides go to class? Oh, golly. Um, sometimes I felt like it was amazing. I found time to go to class because I was doing so many other things. Um, wow. You know, um, and that included being part of the, um, HDFS student government and being a student ambassador for the College of Human Environmental Sciences, which is where HDFS fell under at the University of Missouri. So I did a lot of work in the space within that college. I was also active in my uh, women's fraternity organization and had various leadership roles in that space. Um, at the University of Missouri, we're the originators of homecoming. And so homecoming oh. is, is a very big deal. Yes, 1911, Chester Brewer invited all of the alumni to come home and thus homecoming was born on Furrow Field that year. Um, and so I was selected to serve on homecoming steering committee one year, which was really exciting and helping plan that event for an entire university and its alumni base is a really neat um, and humbling opportunity to see that experience play out from start to finish. and. So I had a, a lot of different opportunities to be involved in student organizations, to be involved in projects with administration that needed student voices. And so I was able to represent the voice of students in a lot of different environments because I kept showing up and kept being passionate about how I was growing as a student in the HDFS program and in the College of Human Environmental Sciences. So my undergraduate experience was tremendously changed. And in my first um, year in the program, one of the requirements was to do the, the child development lab. And so part of that is teaching in the child development center that's on campus, as well as doing supplemental coursework. Um, during that experience, I fell in love with the staff and the students in the child development lab. And after I finished my required semester's worth of content, I became a substitute teacher Okay. And so I was on their sub list and anytime I was asked, as long as I did not have class, I was in that building and I was on the floor with those kids doing the alligator dance or whatever else it was. <laughs> um, and so as much as my academic experience and my social experience and um, my involvement was all with peers and adults, my heart was really anchored to kids and anchored to that space where I was working with um, 
kids who thought it was cool and my socks didn't match and kids who thought it was funny that I was willing to dance like a noodle and you know that sort of stuff and um it's too bad you're not videoing this because my noodle dancing is still very good 20 years later (laughs) I'm Um, sure that comes in handy with your uh, own kiddos just ask my children I am the best noodle dancer in our household oh Um, man so it there was a sort of a turning point where I was thinking about the students that I was working with and our center was a head start program and I decided that in that Head Start program, I had seen some really difficult things. Um, I watched kids come to school in the same clothes four days in a row. Um, I watched the kids around them not notice, but as an adult, you notice things. I, w- I watched and experienced kids coming to school right when the doors open in a taxi cab, re- reeking of smoke because their parents were doing the best they could and the taxi cab driver was smoking with the windows open or because it was even though it was snowing, so the kids freezing and reeks of smoke, but they're, you know, everybody's doing the best they can. Yeah. And I, I watched the staff who are the full-time staff, not the rotating students. I watched the staff show up authentically for every single kid who walked in those doors. Wow. And I watched them advocate for every single kid kid first who walked in those doors and there had been a time there was a tv show i don't know if you're familiar with it it's called judging amy and it was a show about um, a woman named amy who was a judge in the family court system and i watched that show growing up with my mom and there was a day where i thought i finally understand why that judge cared so much because it had never occurred to me to care that much about people's children that weren't part of my family. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that dynamic of, and people had invested in me along the way and I had teachers that had cared about me. And in that sense, it made sense. I'd had teachers that cared about me, but somehow this felt different than just a teacher cares about the student because the conversation, I was never afforded the opportunity to have conversations with my teachers as an adult about the conversations they had after hours, you know? So you don't know that your second grade teacher thinks about you at home. Um, although I actually do know that my second grade teacher has listened to my children read during COVID because she's an amazing human who has stayed connected to me, which is cool. Um, but so I went to Marilyn's office and I said, okay, I don't know that I want to be a preschool teacher, but I do know I want to help families and kids. And I know that's part of this degree. So what do I do next? And I had already been accepted to law school at the university of Missouri Um, and so she said, well, there's a dual degree program where you can get a master's and a JD and the master's is in family studies. And, um, that would be one direction you could take your studies. And that would be one way that you can have this role. So I thought about it for a while and I thought that's exactly what I want to do. I want to be an advocate for families. I want to be the advocate for kids first. And I want to be the safe space for kids to tell the scariest things because mm-hmm. it's really hard um, to tell scary things to people. And I am like a slightly more polished version of a clown in my general <laughs> appearance. And I don't mean that in a self-deprecating way. I have big hair. I like bold lipstick. I wear glittery earrings. I am not a subtle human being <laughs> and, and that's okay. Um, and when it comes to kids, my entire life, I've been the person that talks to kids at Target while they're waiting in line and their mom's trying to unload their cart with 82,000 things. 
and there's a kid trying to help and that's not helping. And you can see the mom going, oh my goodness, how am I going to get to this day? And so then I just would squat down to the level of the kid and ask questions and try not to seem like I was being a creeper. That's the, like the balance, right? So I would often reference, like, you remind me of my niece or you remind me of the students that I have in my classroom or those kinds of things. And I would try to give a parent, even if it was like three minutes of space to unload a shopping cart, that is the greatest gift you can give a parent sometimes. Yeah. So I have, I knew early on that I, for some reason, appear and feel safe to kids kids who are doing great things and kids who are struggling. So I knew that that was something that I could make useful. Um, so I started my first master's in HDFS when I was a senior in undergrad before I got to law school. So I started that my second semester of senior year because I had enough credits elsewhere. And that first class was with Marilyn. Um, and it was so great to get to be taught by this person who had shepherded me through this transition and this awareness of the field. Um, then I graduated and about a month after my graduation, my dad was tragically killed uh, while riding his bike. Oh, and at that time, I was in a course, a summer school course for my master's program. And I remember calling the faculty member crying so hard that he had no idea who I was or what I was saying, which is an accurate statement when you're blindsided by tragedy, right? Yeah. Um, when he finally figured out who I was, um, he told me not to worry about the schoolwork part. And he said, you know, we'll figure this out. We'll figure this out. Fast forward 30 minutes and someone from the department was at my front door what? making sure that I was okay. Wow because that's what the culture of the field is. That's what the practice looks like is of investing in a human. At its core, whether it's a human who's a newborn or a human who is transitioning to life no longer on this planet, the crux of HDFS is always the person. And so that was a really incredible moment of humanness mixed into, you know, tragedy and this experience that was awful. Um, so I dealt with that that summer and then went to law school because that was the plan. And I was still in this phase of, I don't, I can't, I'm still processing what's happening. So I went to law school. And while I was in law school, um, I remember sitting in a class and they were talking about a family, settling a family estate after the death of a parent. That was the case we were studying. And I remember it was the siblings were arguing. That was the point of the cases. The siblings were arguing. They were living in different states and we were trying to figure out based on all these criteria where we could try the case and what it was and all those things. Um, and I remember going up to my professor afterward in as a first year law student who doesn't know, you know, again, anything, but I had a question and it was really important to me. And I was crying and I said, Nobody is acknowledging that there's a person who's dead. Everyone yeah. is talking about the stuff. And I was like really worked up about this, which makes sense given the timing. It was two months after my dad's death. Yeah. So um, he was very kind and gracious and was known for being a very stern and less than friendly human sometimes. 
Um, but I think that there are a lot of people who are actually really kind, but that's not how life has presented them. So he was very kind and um, listened to me. And he said, I'm sure they cared outside. I mean, ultimately, he said, I'm sure they cared outside of the, the courtroom, but that's not what we're here to talk about. And I thought, but, but I care. At that time, I was also working for the athletic department at the University of Missouri. And um, after saying to, going to connect with the um, associate dean of students at Mizzou's Law School, who knew in advance about my dad's accident somehow, mm-hmm. um, my dad was a world record holding cyclist. And so his accident made a lot of news at the time. Mm. And when it happened, somehow someone saw it and connected that to me going to law school. I don't know, but someone reached out, an an administrator reached out to me and said, hey, um, I heard about your dad. If you need something, let me know. And so I went into his office and I just said, I can't do this right now. This isn't, I don't have the bandwidth to to be here. So I, I left law school and went to my boss at the athletic department and said, hey, I have some extra time if you have more students. I was working in there tutoring and mentoring program. Um, And I was having a lot of great success with my students, helping students achieve more than just passable grades. I had students who were excited to talk to me and I had a student who wanted me to call his mom to tell her that he had gotten an A on a paper. And it was so fun to be a part of that experience. And it reminded me a lot of why I loved being in the preschool and daycare classrooms. Because when a four-year-old achieves something they didn't expect, they want to celebrate. And if you are willing to celebrate with them, that celebration will stick with you for a long time. And so getting to have that experience again with students in the collegiate environment was really exciting. Um, And my boss said, hey, did you know you can get a master's in doing this stuff? And I said, what stuff? I didn't know what he was talking about. So he um, once again sent me off to meet with someone in the College of Education at Mizzou. And I went in, again, not realizing who I was meeting with, and meeting with another figure who was nationally recognized in her area of expertise and said, what is this degree? What are you doing? And so I ended up getting a master's in education in educational leadership and policy analysis. And my emphasis was on student affairs administration. The reason for that student affairs emphasis was because everything I loved about the HDFS piece and that decision to put humans first and that decision to hear the human before trying to solve their problem played really well into this particular student affairs space and working with students from, you know, orientation through graduation and every step in between. So I ended up getting a master's in HDF or in, in higher ed and educational leadership policy analysis. And I would say that I used content from my HDFS coursework regularly. I'm a a pack rat of stuff when it comes to research and all those things. So I still had articles and I still had documents that I really valued and studies that impacted me and resources that really somehow felt like they were more important than what we were just talking about in class. And so I had all these things in a Tupperware container, like every college student who has to move around every once in a while. And um, so I used that content all the time and ended up graduating from that program. And ultimately my first job out of grad school was leading a department at the headquarters, the international headquarters for the women's organization, Pi Beta Phi Fraternity for Women, 
that I had been a member of. So I went from grad school to being um, the head of the member services department, which was a really great opportunity to once again, support humans. Yeah. Because that's what HDFS calls us all to do and how we do that and what that looks like is, is different at every turn. Mm-hmm. Um, but my path is, is lined with reminders of the content from HDFS coursework. And when I was in my senior year of undergrad, I was a TA for a colleague I had taken a summer class that was a dual higher level undergraduate class and master's level course. And I had a friend who was in his or master's and doctoral level course. And I had a friend in that class who was teaching in the fall and he needed a TA and he asked me if I was willing to do it. And he said, also, I don't have any money, so I can't really offer you anything, but um, I bring Dr. Pepper to class and I'll bring you one every once in a while if you'd like. (laughs) Um, He's one of my favorite people on the planet. And it was the most like, Scott Tobias thing to say. So it was great. And um, in that class, though, getting to guest lecture there on really, it was a class on intimate relations and marriage, which my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the history of my life, both personally and professionally, is telling my father that his daughter, a perpetually single, very not interested because she was too ambitious for relationships kind of human, was getting ready to teach college students about intimate relations and marriage because he couldn't understand how I was possibly qualified to teach us. <laughs> he laughed so hard, Erica, he fell off a chair because it made as much sense as most pieces of my life, to be honest. Um, but I got to guest lecture in that class and that was a tremendous experience. And um, having someone trust me to impart information to someone else was was really incredibly empowering. And considering, you know, fast forward to the work that I'm doing now and working in the consulting space, um, the fact that Scott said, hey, I'm gonna give you the stage and I'm gonna tell these 300 students that they need to listen to you and they're gonna be tested on you as much as they'll be tested on any other lecture that I would give, gave me such a sense of honor and humility that I was allowed to be classified as an expert on something. Yeah. Um, and so anyhow, so I went on to, to lead this department at Pi Beta Phi. Mm-hmm. And part of my responsibility was the consultant program, which is recent college graduates who travel the country visiting chapters and that sort of thing. And so I got to design their training experience. And every choice I made was rooted in my HDFS experience. Every single decision that I made when it came to not only how to train them, but how to talk to them about the conversations that they were going to have with the students when they, when they were traveling and all these other things, every piece of it truly had some sort of roots and something from the relationship centered content of my undergraduate experience. Mm. Some of it also drew from my student affairs experience, but I looked at my student affairs experience in my master's program through an HDFS lens. Yes. And I looked at it every single time. So I served in that role for a few years and then I left to run a department of professional development at a college of pharmacy, St. Louis College of Pharmacy. So I was there for a couple of years while I was there. Um, I finished my doctoral work in education and my doctorate focus was in andragogy, which is a fancy word for adult learning. (laughs) And 
Well, it's so funny because people that I know who I respect tremendously will talk about the pedagogy on a college campus, and it hurts my soul. I know. Um, I, I, I talk about it, too, and like, I talk about it because that is what's most commonly used, right? But I know in the back of my head it's incorrect. Right. <laughs> so I always, anytime, I always will, like, make a reference to, to that, or I will say, did you have 16 year olds on campus or do you have like, do you have 12 year olds on campus? And I usually do it in like a joking way. And some people have just never heard of the field. Anyhow, I went through this experience and was still settled in this HDFS lens, studying under these experts who were so incredibly passionate about what they were doing and they cared about the field enough. And this is, I think the really unique part and it's what I wish every student had access to was someone who cared enough about the fields to, to be able to hear pieces of it in between unrelated conversations. Yeah. Because that's the, that's the secret, is my entire career, if you looked at it on paper, has nothing to do with HDFS. My entire career, if I could spend 10 more hours explaining to you all the ups and downs and, and lefts and rights, is only HDFS. Mm. It's only this hybrid of psychology and sociology and social work and a little bit of biology mixed in there and all these pieces that make up what HDFS is all about. Yeah. So I left um, my position at the College of Pharmacy after I finished my doctorate so that I could take a position as an associate dean at the University of Missouri-St. Louis um, College of Nursing. So I was the associate dean of students there. Uh, that seems like a pretty, well, I guess you'd had all this great experience because, wow, that, that's a pretty big accomplishment straight out of your doctoral program. Correct. Um, I, thank you. You're not wrong. Um, I will tell you, I t it took a lot of coaching for me to even apply for the position, if okay. I'm being honest. Um, I was nervous to apply. And then when I got invited to interview, I thought that was crazy. Um, because I definitely had a little bit of imposter syndrome going on, right? Wow. And, but the flip side was, when I looked at the job description and I read what they wanted someone to be capable of doing, not only could I come up with three to five examples in my career that I had done a version of that, but I thought to myself, at two o'clock in the morning, if you're working on a project, are you going to be excited that it's that project? And the answer just kept being yes. And that was my metric for whether or not I should even pursue this was, would you, what if you get it? Like that was the risky question is what if you get the offer? Cause I knew if I got the offer, I was going to take it. Yeah. What young, I mean, I was in my early thirties. Um, so what individual gets offered an associate Dean level position and doesn't take it unless it involves a relocation or something. So it was in the same town. I wasn't going to have to move. Nothing was going to change. So I took this position as associate Dean. Um, and knew the first day when I was sitting in my office and a student showed up in my office and stuck their head in very similar to Erica, my maiden name is Breedlove, so very similar to the Erica Breedlove behaviors of the past, um, and just started talking and having questions and I was ready to answer that and I put on my best Marilyn Coleman and I was in it and I was ready to hear them and I was ready to hear them before I worried about their problem and it, it felt like such a natural fit when I got that position. Um, but it, it felt crazy to yeah. get that position until my first day. And I think that's one of the unique things 
that I would say to any, any student, not just in HDFS, but in general is sometimes you underestimate your capacity for greatness so much that you sell yourself short and you don't bother to apply. Yeah. So I would say always apply, but more importantly, if you get the job on your first day, know that you were picked to be in that chair on your first day. So you can show up on day one and be ready to contribute um, because somebody thought you were worth hearing more from and paying you to hear from you. That's a big deal. And that's a huge thing that I think sometimes folks lose, lose sight of. And when I do um, indib- independent consulting, especially if I've coached someone through a job search, mm-hmm. um, when they get the job on the first, before the first day, I like to touch base with them and remind them that they've earned the job. They don't have to justify it. You know, I think a lot of folks show up for the first day and they think, I don't want them to regret hiring me. Right. And while there's certainly, you know, some truth to that, that you don't want to show up in a ripped t-shirt and jeans and start cursing, like, don't do that. But don't forget that they saw in you the traits that they wanted to have in that role. So learn from that and value that and honor that as you move forward. Absolutely. So, So, um, and two, this one just, because um, people might be unfamiliar with like kind of the daily responsibilities. And you mentioned oh, yeah. like even when you were considering applying, like you knew that these things were exciting to you. Like, I guess in a nutshell, like what are the daily responsibilities for oh. the position of associate dean? Oh my goodness. Sure. That's, that's serious thunder. <laughs> well, that was thunder. Yikes. Thunder. Yeah. Oh my so I am sorry. No, that's okay. That was some, that was some thunder. You're not kidding. Yeah, it is. We are having a serious thunder situation over here. And uh, oh. because of the thunder, my child has had to come back in. So you might oh, no. see her, that's right. her but, with her dad. But yeah, if you could give us a, a little nutshell description of what the responsibilities were. Sure. Um, at the time, and, and probably is still true for most folks in the associate dean of students type of role. Some of it was enrollment management, looking at programs and looking at numbers and looking at recruitment and doing all those things, which is takes a completely different mindset than navigating student difficulties. And before you would go to the dean of students for the university, if there was a problem within the college, then you would go to the dean of students for the college Mm -hmm. or the associate dean of students for the college. So having to navigate problematic students or problematic behavior or students that had concerns about everything from food insecurity to housing to um, students would show up in my office to talk about abuse or a variety of different things. And it was the, you know, the the piece of administration that was the catch-all for all the things that weren't exactly academic and they weren't exactly financial, but they were still part of the human experience. So it's essentially everything that happened outside of the classroom, my department supported for the students that were in the college. Yes. Is that a good, does that feel? That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, yeah, you guys provide the support. So I had, uh, reporting to me, I had a set of academic advisors and I had um, a success coach and and a couple of other folks that were all in place to help ensure that the students could be successful and were holistically supported. Yes, that's a very good nutshell. Thank you. Yeah, I think sometimes people like students, I mean, especially when you're actually matriculating through a program, you just see mainly the academic side and maybe some of the programs that the student affairs side will support. But a lot of times, you know, it's unclear what these 
what these other people behind the scenes are doing, but it's so important Correct. because when something happens, <laughs> you know, and that in uh, uh, the students suddenly in need, like those are the only students who really get to kind of see the back, the backdrop, sure. all that's going on behind the scenes. And I told, I remember calling or telling my husband, I, after my first or second day, I said, these chairs are not going to work in my office, which was a really strange thing to say to someone who, so my partner has a PhD in molecular biology. His brain functions the opposite of mine <laughs> on most things. And which is great. He's very good and passionate about what he does. And when he talks to me about work, I try really hard to understand like three to five words a sentence. <laughs> um, and I said, I went home and I said, Dan, these chairs in my office are not going to work. I'm going to order chairs. I hope that's okay. And he said, what difference do the chairs in your office make? And I said, well, I had three different students in my office crying today and they can't possibly be comfortable in the chairs that are there. So I'm going to need better chairs if they're going to cry. Yeah. So that was how, you know, he, he knew my background and my experience, but that was even how he, who was in the pro process of finishing his PhD at the time, got a sense of the student affairs vibe Right. which again is rooted in the human experience and the person-centered experience, which all goes back to Marilyn Coleman telling me that there was an entire degree about caring about people right. <laughs> so, um, without having to do surgery or any other medical thing, which is, look, I put on band-aids on my own kids and that's the extent of it. Um, <laughs> so I, I remember early on in my career or in my role at UMSL, um, we found out that deferred action students who were in our program, which is a nursing program, and to practice nursing, you have to sit for your state board license, okay. right? If you are a deferred action student, a DACA student, you have um, a social security card number but you do not have a physical residence in the US. Okay. To sit for a state licensing exam is a right of residence of the state. Mm. We had students who were getting ready to graduate, some as early as December of that year, and this was in, in June, who were getting ready to graduate and would not be legally allowed to sit for the board licensing exam because they weren't legal residents of any state in the US. Wow. So they were getting ready to have a degree that they couldn't use. Yeah. And healthcare has a lot of regulations, rightly so, about practicing outside the scope of your job. Mm -hmm. So if for some reason they got a job as um, a nurse's aide, they could not do anything that they were qualified to do because of their nursing education by um, legal ramifications because the title of nursing aide has very specific jobs, but if they accidentally slipped up and made a nursing decision because they knew the right answer or whatever, they could lose their job and that their employer could get shut down. So no employer was likely to hire someone with a nursing degree for an, a job that was below a nursing degree level job. Wow. I was the person who had to tell each of these students individually that we had discovered this. Oh no. And Erica, I will tell you, I cried the night before my first appointment like you would not believe. And I listened to my partner say, you were made for this. You 
exude compassion and you care more about helping those students than you would if this was your own problem. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was true, but everything about it just felt terrible, right? The weight of that and the magnitude of that. So I went to, to campus the next day and the first appointment I had, let me please set the scene. She was early. She was visibly pregnant. And I'm talking like eight, eight-ish months pregnant. Oh, wow. So I see this young woman and I am mentally prepared to send her into early labor with the stress of this thing that I'm about to tell her. And I legitimately thought to myself, well, at least the chair is comfortable. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I did because I had, to, I had to do something for my own mental space to be prepared to, to be present with her. Right. And again, I, I go all the way back to my time working in the child development lab. No matter what was happening in my life or no matter what weight I was carrying, when I knew things about students or experiences or whatever was happening, I had to show up for the person as who they needed, not who I was. Yeah. And so you have to figure out what's your, you know, those pump up songs, the walk up songs in baseball, like how do you get from the dugout to home plate to swing at that on behalf of these kids. So I had that same mentality because my students were as important to me as a four-year-old was all those years earlier. Right. And so um, I was very fortunate that because of the political climate at the time, it was just before the 2016 elections. Um, Most of the deferred action students that I talked with already had legal counsel because of other issues and concerns that they had going into that election. Um, So in some ways I was lucky because I was able to be present and have these conversations with students and their immediate response was, okay, I'll call this person. Um, But I was also reminded about the impact of large things for entire families and entire groups, um, which is a key part of all of the relationship coursework that I'd had because most of these individuals, these students that came to my office did not come by themselves. Yeah. They came with a sibling or they came sometimes with a parent or different things. And it wasn't because they needed someone to interpret. It was because those meetings, a meeting with an associate Dean was something that was a family experience. And it reminded me how important I know I keep circling back to why HDFS mattered so much. And I I guess in some ways, I think that's because that's the point of what we're talking about Mm -hmm. for the podcast, but also because I think it's so important for someone who's listening, who's in the HDFS space right now to hear that everything you're learning has an impact, even if you never do anything that's on the recruitment material for the HDFS department. Yeah. And so when I was in my undergraduate experience, the multicultural coursework that I took and the importance of remembering that something that seems out of the ordinary to me may be exactly normal standard protocol for someone else based on their cultural upbringing yeah is the number one reason why i didn't send a family member out of my office yeah you know so i think that that changed how i served in that role at that time Mm -hmm. because I didn't know the cultural expectations of any of my students unless I asked them. Mm -hmm. And instead of making assumptions, I just, if someone wanted to have someone else in the office with them, that was their choice, not mine. I'm not the student. So it's not my um, privacy that I have to worry about. Yeah. So that experience was an incredibly intense 
opportunity to channel a lot of what I had learned along the way, which was to keep my composure when things were hard. Mm -hmm. um, when I was dealing with parents who I had a, a parent when I was in the child care center who was a high ranking public official who threatened to have me arrested um, because he didn't like that his child had gotten in trouble and something had happened. And I actually hadn't even been there that day, but I was there when the child got picked up and had to communicate it. So oh. it's very much like I, I didn't even do anything, <laughs> um, but he was, he was very angry and he needed somewhere to place his anger. Yeah. And I was on the receiving end of that. And I learned at a young age how to receive that without internalizing that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a metric of how you stay mentally capable to do that every day in and yeah. out. That composure, that capability, that ability yeah. to stay in a, in a space where you can problem solve. Sure. Difficult, you know, even through emotionally difficult situations, but like that ability to, I mean, because even in difficult times, like when you had to have those meetings with the students, like when you saw kids come into school in the same outfit four days in a row, um, even through those times, um, it, like everybody just can't be running around. <laughs> right. You know, just, yeah, just uh, so upset that they can't even think straight, you know, like there, yeah, you got to keep someone, it together. Yeah. There's got to be someone who can help problem solve. And so, yeah, it sounds like, throughout this uh, course of many years, you were able to really hone that set of skills where you were able to build the capacity to be with someone and be in that space when they're going through difficult circumstances, when they're going through challenges. Like, Correct. And, and that support. You know, in, in some degree programs in the HGFS space, there are components of death and bereavement coursework. Mm -hmm. And I think that learning how to support someone through death as an undergraduate student who had only had a few experiences of death in my life up until that point, mm -hmm. and granted, they were in high school and they were traumatic, but they were, that experience was a collective experience. When a high school student dies, the entire school sort of grieves together in a way, and so you don't feel like you're grieving alone. Right. Um, my first, well, my grandfather died when I was young, so I don't have any recollection of that, but my first major family death was when I was a senior in college yeah. and I'd already gone through this death and bereavement coursework to have a sense of grief and grief on the death scale is different than grief when you don't get a job or grief when you're overwhelmed by circumstances, but at some point it's not, it's the same grief mm -hmm. is an emotional anchor that's pulling you down. Yeah. And so learning how to support someone else and help remove that anchor so that they can move forward had a tremendous impact on my ability to, to navigate my own life personally and, and how to support other people when they were going through things. And so I became a safe haven for a lot of people with heavy stuff because I learned how to move anchors. Yeah. And so if you take my professional experience up to that point, at the same time that I was doing all of this salaried work, early on in my time at PiFi, I got asked, I spoke at a conference and someone asked me to give a keynote. 
And that was the tipping point for me to enter into this consulting space. So at the same time that I was moving through my job running department at PiFi and then running department at the College of Pharmacy and going into associate dean, I was doing a bunch of consulting work and giving keynotes and leading professional development programs and doing a variety of different things all around areas of professional development and strategic planning. So when my partner got invited to apply for a postdoc out here in Fort Collins, um, and we decided that was the best fit for him and for his career. So I actually left my position as associate dean so that I could um, support him in his next step in his professional career. I decided to just see what would happen if I was only a consultant, which only sounds like I'm belittling it, which I'm definitely not. But I decided not to tackle the job search. I'd gotten a spousal offer from Colorado State. It wasn't, um, it was a, a little offensive to someone who was in an associate dean role. So I decided that wasn't the right fit. That wasn't the direction that I wanted to go. And instead, I decided to really pour energy into the consultant work and client work that I had been growing over a number of years. And fast forward, now I, I run my own business doing versions of everything I was doing along the way. And conceptually, I spend my days helping other people be the most authentic version of themselves. But they can and on my, on my, oh, go ahead. No, so your, your company, you're the founder and CEO of Strategically Authentic. Correct. And so, okay. So yes, that, I think that they're, oh, sorry about the thunder again. I'm like trying That's to right. wait until it stops and then talk. I'll cut some of this out. You're all right. <laughs> cut as much out as I can. But um, I think a lot of people do have interest in starting their own um, company and they just don't even know what to go about it. So just tell us anything you're willing to share. Oh, about. sure. Yeah, moving to this new place. So that's a huge yeah. life change. And then I moved to the middle, not the middle of nowhere. It's the mountains. But I moved to the mountains with two very small children. Um, our kids at the time were uh, 19 months old and just about to turn three. So okay. little. And um, I just decided to see what it would look like if I kept connecting with folks. And I are, I moved with a few contracts. So I was very fortunate that I moved with some contracts already in place that allowed me to breathe a little bit. And how did you get those existing contracts? Um, uh, a mix of things. Some of my contracts came because I spoke at conferences or conventions or those kinds of things. So you, and a lot of times you apply to give a professional development program or you apply to talk about your research and depending on the field and depending on the topic, um, some folks in the room would say, hey, I really liked your presentation. I wanna pay you to come give that presentation to my faculty. Or I wanna ask you to build something based on what you just shared with your research and what you know now, I wanna ask you to build something for my team or will you come help with first year orientation? Most of the um, work that I was doing was in higher ed or nonprofit space because that's where I had been spending my energy. So that's how a lot of those contracts came. Then um, I started getting contracts because someone would email me and say, I was at a conference and I was talking to this person. This actually happened. I was at a conference and I was talking to the person at my table for breakfast 
and we were discussing our immediate challenges with our administration. Um, and this person that I was sitting with said, oh, after I, after I explained my problem, the person I was sitting with said, oh, you need to talk to Dr. Mikowski. She can help you with that. So then all of a sudden my contracts were coming because I did really great work for somebody else and they valued it enough to tell a peer, this woman can help you because she came and she had a positive impact with us. Wow. So that word of mouth piece was tremendous. The first time I got an email out of the blue, I almost thought it was fake because, because that was not what I was expecting. My life plan did not have be a professional consultant on it. That was never, that was never where I thought things were going. Yeah. And so that my first contract like that happened while I was still in St. Louis. And I think because of that, because it shifted from just speaking at conferences and getting noticed there to the word of mouth piece, that was the moment where I thought, okay, people like me enough that they're telling other people about me. That means something. I should notice that. Definitely. So I I started reaching out to different entities here in Fort Collins. My first local contract was helping a pharmaceutical company that needed to develop um, their, their learning and development department was very new. And as a pharmaceutical company, the FDA has very specific regulations about how L and D works and, and those kinds of things. And so I helped them grow their department and start writing training protocols and developing programming to support those needs that were very specific to their pharmaceutical, not just the industry itself, but the specific equipment that they had and those kinds of things. So I got to work with experts on machinery that I'd never heard of in my life because I knew how to write training and I knew how to write programming and they needed someone who knew how to turn their words into a program that the FDA would acknowledge and value. Um, so I just kept showing up and listening and listening to my friends who said, man, I'm really frustrated with this. And I have done, I will tell you, part of starting a business sometimes is doing work pro bono. And I have done a ton of pro bono work for people who wanted to do something for their staff, but in tight budget times, professional development dollars are almost always the first to get cut. Yeah. So I have had friends that have said, hey, I can buy you coffee. Will you coach my staff? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I have said yes more times than, than perhaps my partner would prefer, but um, <laughs> our kids have still eaten routinely, so we've done okay. But, you know, it's, I think that choice to invest in other people and to see someone who really wants to help their team and doesn't know how to do that or doesn't know how to explain to their um their supervisor, how to spend those dollars or why those dollars matter. When someone says to me, I believe my staff is capable of doing more and I don't know how to get them there. That to me is a dream job. And so that project is something that I want to help with. I think the most meaningful thing that you can do in the life of someone else is believe that they are capable of more and then help them get there. Yeah. So in my graduate coursework, the, there are 80 billion theories on student development because mm -hmm. there are 80 billion theories on everything. Yeah. Um, but Sanford's theory of challenge and support is about this idea that if you offer a challenge and 
provide meaningful support, the individual is capable of achievement. Mm. And so that mirrored so much of what I saw in the HDFS space. And that theory is what I use in everyday practice. I, when I'm talking to Fortune 500 companies, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, here's the challenge. How do we build the support for the team so the team can achieve that? And how do we do it in a meaningful way so the team feels valued so that they want to achieve the next goal and that comes along? Everything goes back to the person and the individuals in the team and how are they valued and how do I help someone in a leadership role who often has been moved up a ladder without any coaching on the supervisory piece. We've all experienced a supervisor who doesn't know how to be a supervisor, but happened to be good at something else along the way and ended up a supervisor. So my passion is helping amplify the voices of the team so the supervisor recognizes their capacity and equipping the supervisor with the types of programs they need to support that team to exceed everyone's expectations. Mm. My favorite day is when I get a call and someone says, well, we beat our timetable by four months. Like, come on, that's great. That's amazing. That means you gave your people the right stuff to do something that you already thought was a, a stretch goal. So that means everyone recognizes what's capable. And the, you know, the other thing that I think is so interesting in my professional work now and the support that I provide for individuals and departments and divisions and, and entire companies. I'm kind of all over the map and that's fun for me. Every day is a different day. Um, and I appreciate that. And that's why the student affairs space was a good fit. And I think that's why HDFS was a good fit. No person is the same. Every day in a daycare center is different, even if you have a plan. So oh yeah, you know, across the map, it's, it's, it aligns with my passion for showing up and seeing what happens. Yeah. So when I work with groups now and I choose to show up and see what happens, I still, Erica, if you can believe this, will routinely reference Gottman's research, which I learned about my freshman year of undergrad. Yes. Part of my coursework in that class that I thought was really cool and changed my career trajectory. And so, you know, there are folks, um, there's a researcher in organizational psychology that took Gottman's research and drew from it. And so I reference some of that data as well and all those things. But the idea of having five positive interactions to one negative interaction, which we all in the HDFS space tie to um, social relationships, emotional relationships, and personal relationships, I use in the professional space all the time. And it is mind blowing. Wow. How many times someone has said, oh my goodness, that is the key to changing the culture here. Changing our framework and changing our mindset to look at the impact of positive interactions and negative and, and creating a metric around what is a positive interaction and what is a negative and how big is a negative that requires more than five and you know those sorts of things. To look at all of this information that grew out of divorce research and marital research and use it with folks who are navigating billions of dollars is the perfect mix of someone like me with a strategic brain who, I mean, look, I do laundry strategically. So <laughs> strategic planning is like my favorite. But so with a strategic mindset who wants to think through things in a different way, but 
usually is nonlinear in my thought process, which is part of my success is that I kind of think all over the map and then look at the map from the big picture and say, what does this mean? To take that and take all this research that felt so important to me because it was about real actual people and it was having impacts in, in lives, my career path makes zero sense. But my landing point based on what was my first sort of I just snapped my fingers. You can't see that. My first sort of um, match strike of passion about investing in people with that in mind, it makes complete sense that I would sit here now and say my professional role is to cheer on other people. That's totally logical. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. The career path, when you look at your resume, it does, it's like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, you've worked in a broad range, in a broad range of settings doing um, a broad range of things in a variety of different roles. Um, but yes, when you explain it <laughs> and you explain what drew you to each role um, and what really kept you going, then yeah, you're right. You look back and it makes perfect sense. I'm wondering, a couple of things are coming to mind for me. Okay. First of all, I'm wondering um, kind of if you can share if there's a project, of course, you don't need to be specific about who the client was, you know, but something that really sticks out to you, a particular project that you worked on and kind of what that looked like from start to finish. And then I'm also wondering, it's something that really strikes me about you that I think is really inspiring is and you touched on it earlier that you're not afraid to kind of jump in and um and you know you know you've got at least this confidence that you you are capable and you can find the knowledge that you need in order to help the people that you need to help like you're driven by this you're driven by this passion to help people you're driven both individually and groups and that regardless of the setting, you know, whether you're working in pharmacy or nursing or, you know, business, like, you know, you will jump in and you're not afraid to get in there and figure it out and figure out how to actually coach people in a variety of different ways. So I guess I'm also wondering, I don't know, just if you could share your thoughts on the, your process for seeking out information and continuing to learn because, you know, I imagine that you, that there's a huge learning curve with some of these jobs. That oh, hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so part of it is this, here's my secret and I'll even let you share it with everyone who's listening. Awesome. <laughs> On my best day, I recognize myself in the mirror and I recognize myself in my actions. On my worst day, I know that if I can't still recognize myself in the mirror and recognize myself in my actions, I know that I've made my life harder, that I am giving myself one of those anchors. So part of my passion for cultivating authenticity is rooted in this. One day someone was asking me about what I was doing with my kids. And I didn't know this was what I, I, it's work that I've been doing for a long time, but this really was a pivotal moment for me. 
she was asking me about something and I had planned a day with my kids. They weren't in daycare. And so I'd planned a day and I'd given it a theme like a true former preschool teacher would. And we had all these activities and coordinated snacks and it was ridiculous, but I had done all of this because it felt like me. And she said to me, Erica, you are the best mom. And I said, no, I am certain I am not the best mom, but I am the Erica-ist mom. And I show up as my Erica-ist self every day for my kids. And that allows me to handle everything that life throws at me. And I showed up in my office as my Erica-ist self when I was associate dean. And that allowed me to throw, handle everything that was thrown at me. And so I talk in my work about being your est self, E-S-T, because best is a terrible metric. You might have a completely different definition of what the best mom is than I do. And we both have a bunch of research in what parenting should look like. So, you know, the metric for best is so variant. But if you can be your most authentic self, the, the piece that takes the least amount of work, then you know how to handle these other things that come at you from a personal perspective or from a professional perspective. So when I choose to be my authentic self who loves glitter, still to this day, I'm currently wearing grown-up glitter glasses, don't worry. Yes. And, um, you know, when I choose to be myself and I choose to surround myself with people who expect me to be myself. They also expect me to be a professional sometimes or know what I'm talking about all the time, but they expect me to be loud and pink and glittery and blonde. And they're okay with that because that's who I am every time. And I know because I've been told that across my career, I got invited to be on search panels and different committees and different things because I brought genuine enthusiasm and positivity to the table and they could guarantee that that was going to be part of having me there. Mm -hmm. That's who I am as a person. That's who I show up as every day. So when things are hard or projects are daunting or when I get assigned a task that seems truly out of my league, even applying for that associate dean position, I looked at the paperwork and said, well, on my best day and my worst day, that's who I am. I'm the person that wants to do that job. I'm the person who wants to support the student. I'm the person who's willing to stay late and listen to those stories or look at that data for the 800th time and trying to figure out why numbers don't look like we expected. And I use that confidence in who I am to pursue the knowledge I need to achieve whatever task I'm handed. And so when I get invited to be part of a project that feels completely out of my wheelhouse, for example, helping design programming that is going to be regulated by the federal government for a pharmacy manufacturing company, that was completely outside the realm of my experience. Yeah. But I knew that if I stayed true to who I was, I would be confident enough to, to sit at the table. That's the first part. And that goes back to what I said earlier. When you get selected for a job, you've been invited to sit at the table. So sit in your chair. So I knew that I was confident enough to sit at the table. I knew to be humble enough to listen for the pieces I didn't know. And then I found ways to take what I already knew and what I had already experienced and to start layering it in. So some of the 
most rewarding projects are tied to the fact that I initially would have told someone close to me, I don't know what I'm doing, but they've asked me to do this thing. So when someone invites you to do something that you don't know anything about, they're doing it because of who you are. So they're doing it because you're juggling bowling pins like a champion and they need someone who can juggle a bowling, juggle a bowling pin that they might set on fire. So you learn how to navigate fire. Mm -hmm. And that's really been the success that I've had personally and professionally. My partner was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and I was asked during our first appointment with his oncologist if I was ready to be a single parent. When they finally found the cancer, he had been harboring a tumor for, we assume, close to 10 months. Wow. It had taken over his torso. He went from the ER to inpatient pain management to emergency chemo. At the time, I had a four-month-old and a 19-month-old. I cannot even imagine. And I could have gotten angry. And I could have gotten hateful and I could have done a lot of things, but I knew who I was. So anyhow, we went, we went to chemo and I will tell you that my partner and I showed up to every chemo treatment in themed out costumes in full costume. Every chemo treatment had a theme and I'm telling you my children were involved. Um, sometimes other people were involved. The day that we went to his first appointment, they gave us the schedule for his treatment regimen. He was going to go through six rounds of treatment. And so I knew in my calendar when all these things were going to happen. Mm -hmm. That night, at roughly midnight, when my whole house was asleep, I was sitting on the floor of the bathroom in our condo because it was the only place that I could sit where I didn't disturb anybody that was sleeping because I had two babies and a husband trying to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, I was sitting on the floor in the bathroom and I sent an email to a hundred people that we love. And I said, we're going to do this. I don't have any interest in any outcome other than survival. And here's the day that we're, pl we're planning the surprise party for Dan to celebrate. Wow. I sent that message that day because that's who I am as a person. And that surprise party was the greatest event I have ever coordinated in my life. It's who I am. It was the most authentic representation of me in a personal sense was this ridiculous surprise party with people from all over the globe who flew into St. Louis in, in a snowstorm to come cheer for the fact that this thing that, that I decided was going to happen happened. And yeah. it was that Dan beat cancer. Yeah. So if I had not already established a sense of self and if I had not already become comfortable with my approach to surviving my life and not just surviving my life, but my approach to thriving in this experience of life I'm afforded, I would have drowned on that first day. Mm -hmm. So Along my path, people said to me, you are enough. And in the beginning, that seemed crazy because some of the people who said I was enough were really important. Marilyn Coleman said that I was enough to get a master's and, and a law degree and go 
do all these things. And, and I try to honor that nod in the volunteer work that I do and the types of things that I do for families here in, in St. Louis. I was on boards supporting families, particularly in the foster care space and working with kids who are navigating some of the challenges that they didn't pick for themselves, but that were thrust upon them by circumstances outside of their control. So I still think about Marilyn telling me I was enough when I was having panic attacks over whether, before my dad was killed, I was in her office thinking, I don't even know if I can do this. And she was confident that I could. And yeah. at every turn, I was incredibly fortunate to have someone in my corner, someone who said, you may not see it today, but I see it today and I know you'll see it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So those foundational components for me as a professional are the entire structure of my company now. Yeah. I get, to, I get to, and I say get to with much humility and just sheer pleasure. I get to sit down with people and say, you may not see it right now, but I know you'll see it tomorrow. And I get to help them figure out what that looks like and how to get there. And sometimes that's creating a five-year plan. And sometimes that's creating professional development for an HR department who wants to build their team but doesn't know how, or they have a high turnover rate because nobody feels valued or invested in. And coaching someone on how to value someone else because they moved up the ranks and they came from a space where they'd never really had academic coursework in the value of other humans or thinking about other humans when making decisions mm -hmm. is, is exactly what someone with an HDF, HDFS degree should do, right? Like that's, it makes total sense. Right. If you are me. And, yeah. and I think I use the phrase exactly perfect a lot because exactly perfect is something that makes little sense. Most things in life are not exactly perfect. That's a very finite endpoint. But I choose to live every moment as if it's exactly perfect. Mm -hmm. So right now, I'm trying to run a business and be a kindergarten teacher and a first grade teacher. And I will tell you, I am not about to be rewarded teacher of the year. I'm not doing <laughs> a perfect job. But our life is exactly perfect because the breath between the structure is filled with joy. Yeah. And that's who I am. That's who we are. I am a person who pursues joy. I think that joy and being happy are very different and they often get intermixed. Yes. I think lots of people are happy. But cultivating joy is a different kind of work. And I believe in cultivating joy in my personal life and in my professional life. And I think part of that is because I've always loved cheering for other people. Yeah. I've loved encouraging other people at every step. And in, in my early professional life and in my undergraduate life, that looked like sitting down with a, a four-year-old who was learning how to hold a pencil the right way and, and cheering for that moment. And to me, that moment and the magnitude of that accomplishment is worth celebrating. I give a workshop and one of the, it has five pillars and one of the pillars of this workshop for project management is the celebration piece. And sometimes I will tell you, I get emotional and a little bit teary talking about how we as a culture are either not celebrating or we're doing it wrong so we've watered it down. Mm 
Hmm. And so I, I honestly believe my, my passion for celebration started long before I was in college. Hmm. But my decision to be public with my celebratory nature in college wound its way into these different places. I was celebratory enough that I made the right, had the right friendships or relationships with a person who said, hey, take this class. And then I took the class and then I was so excited and enthusiastic and pursuing that, that I went to Marilyn's office and, you know, all the things along the way, they're all rooted in my overt and perhaps to some excessive enthusiasm for getting a chance to exist on this planet. Yeah. And some people would say, oh, that's because your dad was killed early. Remember, he did not die until I had graduated from undergrad. It is who I am intrinsically as a human. Yeah. And getting to find a way where there was a degree program that gave me permission to be this as a human and value this as a human and then said, how can you turn that into a way to value someone else as a human? And how can you support other people who want that, but don't know if it's safe or don't know if it's allowed? Right. My entire experience has been rooted in my level of comfort at, at the core, encouraging and enthusiastically cheering for other people who want to do something, anything. And, and so your question about learning new things and all of that, for me to be the best possible cheerleader, I got to learn cheers that make sense. I was a cheerleader in high school. You don't do wrestling cheers at a football game. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. That was a ridiculous statement, but it's no, true. So <laughs> you don't like you wouldn't go take down, take two at a football game. No one would know what you're talking about. So when you want to cheer for someone else, you have to understand where they are and how they want to get to somewhere else. And most people who are stuck are stuck because someone hasn't said it's okay for you to be greater. It's okay for you to do more. We, um, we're programmed to wait. And I'm actually in the process of writing a book about this exact concept that we're programmed to wait for permission to do things you don't actually need permission to do. Uh. So I get to be a professional permission granter. What a cool job that, that I is. created, but it's, I accidentally invented this job for myself, which was to, and that's why I love that. Instead of being the CEO in a traditional sense, my business card says chief encouragement officer. That's a very intentional choice. Yeah. Everything I do is tied to encouraging growth, development, progress of other people. And so the environment may look different. The specific task may look different, but the purpose on my end is the same. That's awesome. Chief encouragement officer. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> and strategically authentic. I mean, yeah. I mean, what? So when you sit back and think about it, how, uh, <laughs> how is there a better job, you know, right. than encouraging people to be their most authentic and truest and best version of themselves. Right. I just want people to, to feel confident leveraging who they are to get where they want to go. 
Now, who you are may need more education or training or that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I work with clients and I say, well, I love where you want to go, but here are the things that logistically have to happen. Right. But that's never change your personality. Who you are is who you are. And how tremendous to get to repeatedly day in and day out, work with individuals and say, you are enough. Just like someone said to me along the way. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's a really powerful concept to sit with. Um, and it, okay. it was, it was as much because of all of my professional experience and all these things that I was successful as it was consuming every ounce of the human components of my degree program. Yeah. It's all tied back to that. And if I had gotten a journalism degree, I could have gone through my entire experience without maybe psych 101 and maybe an HGFS elective or something. Well, that was how this started was HGFS elective, but you can go through entire degree programs with ever, without ever being forced to sit in this space of the human experience. Mm -hmm. Because that's true, I am busy. Yeah. I, <laughs> I work with people who have never thought, oh, I am having a negative impact on people, and that is having a negative impact on our product. Yeah. And what you just said, I think, is important. Um, to remind ourselves, you know, at, at every level, um, I think that when we, when we know something so well, um, or when we have been in spaces where we've had to think about these concepts and discuss them so extensively, you start to kind of just take for granted and you just, you know, you start to, to take the knowledge and skills and the, um, just the understanding for granted and you just assume, oh yeah, everybody, everybody should know that and then when you step back and you really start talking to people you realize no <laughs> and like you said that is a reason there's a reason why you're busy um, my right. husband is also in the um his his background is in psychology so this is another one of the related fields of hdfs sure. but it's it's in development um and yeah again we talk about it all the time you know how we just oh we we thought that was because we've been in the space so long, things that seem second nature to us, you know, they're, they're not, it's not, everybody doesn't know it and everybody hasn't had the opportunity to really reflect on some of these questions and reflect on themselves and who they are and, um, and their goals in the same way. And so, yeah, I imagine you are very busy and that's really cool to be able to um, invest in people investing in themselves and, you know, really developing themselves and getting people to where they want to go. It's a very rewarding um, lot of work to be in, I'm sure. And it's funny that you just said, um, you know, that we lose sight of the things that we're used to or we, we know and we forget that other people don't know them, the common knowledge in our own space. Because yeah. one of the number one pieces of, of coaching that I end up offering out, and this is with individuals, this is with small groups, this is with large groups, because I've done so much work in the higher ed space, which is sort of a cyclical nature and a Groundhog's Day kind of yes. experience. <laughs> uh, 
Some of your podcast listeners might be too young to recognize the Groundhog's Day reference, except now that we're living in this COVID thing, I think Groundhog's Day has made it a return. I think it has. Everyone keeps talking about it. So, um, but when I work with, for example, academic advisors, or when I was working with consultants for PiFi, or when I was when I have supported the programming for consultants at other entities, someone who's going to repeatedly hear the same questions or repeatedly have the same experiences, either once a year or every academic advising period or multiple times during the academic advising window, whatever it is, or even when I'm doing um, work with patient care, you get to a point in some of these roles that I work with where you know the question before they finish saying it because you've heard it 82 times. (laughs) Yes. But the secret is, and even as a faculty member, you might know this um, or have experienced this where you hear the same question 82 times. And the piece that I think is so useful, and it's the same as sitting with the fifth four-year-old learning to use a pencil, is that for that person, They may be number five to me, but it's their one time that they're achieving this thing. Or for that student that's having a conversation with an academic advisor who's been in the field for 15 years and has heard roommate issues for 15 years, it's the first time they're coming to you to tell you that thing or to celebrate with you or whatever it is. You're the outlet. So it may be repeated behavior, but you're the chosen one. And losing sight of that immediately compromises the ability to have a meaningful relationship. True. So as soon as you remember that it's the first time this person is talking about their roommate issue, even though you have heard about it for six years, at least once a year, twice a year, 12 times a year, whatever it is, you sit in your chair differently. You're present for that conversation differently. And so in the same way that we forget, people don't have the same shared knowledge that we have among our field or the, you know, I've been using research that I've had in my back pocket for a long time. And because of that, I'm comfortable talking about different researchers and theories and I do it on the fly all the time and and try to remember that most of the people I'm talking to have not heard any of the stuff that I'm talking about. Right. But also... I'm trying to help, I think, helping people remember that nothing in your relationships can fall into the old hat or expected category. That's how you truly value a person. True. Yeah. Yeah, you just can't, it can't be routine. (laughs) A relationship just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and even if you know the response, you can't be, you can't be a robot with your response. Even if you know, these are the three options and here's what they do. And here's who they call about their bad roommate or whatever it is. The way in which that information is communicated. Right. Tells the person on the receiving end, whether or not they have value. Right. I'm doing a series right now on Instagram with my, with my profile about catastrophic communication these cycles of communication that people get in that are detrimental to professional success, professional relationship building, et cetera, and turning into a robotic deliverer of expected information can be incredibly damaging to the culture of an entity. 
Yeah. I mean, you even think about it in, in customer service. I mean, sure. Customer service, but, but especially in any sort of field where you are supposed to be developing a sustained relationship, or even if it's not sustained, even if it's one time, if the other person is going to be having a relationship with your entity, like a university, like a company. Um, yeah. I mean, no, that, that's a really interesting series. I'm going to definitely have to check that out. What, what's your Instagram? You will not be surprised. That okay. is a little bit extra. And okay. a little bit, like if I could throw glitter on my Instagram handle, I also would do that. But I actually, actually go by Consultant Barbie on Instagram. Wow. I love but it. Isn't it perfect now that you've spent some time talking to me? It is absolutely perfect. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to link to that as well. Consultant Barbie. I am going to check that out. Okay. Um, you've dropped a lot of knowledge throughout the entire interview. So, <laughs> I mean, but I always close with the question. Oh yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't ask? And is there any advice that you have for students or new professionals who might be interested in your line, you know, oh my gosh. line of work? Well, this is now your open forum. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, I've, I feel like I've unofficially used this entire thing as an open forum. Um, oh, I love it. You've been so, so look, funny. before we even do this, Erica, let me tell you, you have been incredibly gracious. I am so honored that you've invited me here, but that you've just openly let me share this weird ebb and flow of my life in such a way. So, so kudos to you for, for being present with me. You've been all of the things that I'm talking about as a podcast host in a different time zone than me. So, so thank you for being so welcoming and gracious um, in this process. I really appreciate it. Um, well, you are welcome and thank you for being so vulnerable because oh. it's kind of easy to do that when the person is willing to share. <laughs> I mean, you know, I appreciate, yeah, because that's what it's, that's what it's all about. I mean, is, is hearing people's stories. And so I appreciate your willingness to share and your willingness to take time. We know everybody's busy, especially right now. So I appreciate your vulnerability and oh, sure. your time commitment. Well, I will tell you, so as far as things that I would share that I haven't, good golly, I'm <laughs> full of stories. It's part of who I am. And and I think much to the chagrin of some people who have had to serve on committees with me. Um, but I also always bring snacks. So I feel like I balance it with baked goods because I love baking for other people. There we go. <laughs> so I, try to, I try to honor who I am and also honor who other people see me as if it's frustrating. Um, but I would say, I don't know that there's anything necessarily that I can think of, but I can tell you if there is a listener that's like, well, you mentioned this one thing in passing and you didn't finish answering the question or I have a new question. I am happy to field any question that anyone wants to throw at me from here on out. So you can just send them my way and tell them that Erica will talk to them about anything. That's uh, awesome. Oh, Dr. Dr. Mikowski, I guess well, there's two Erica's on here. That might've been confusing. I, Dr. Mikowski, am willing to talk to anyone about anything. Yeah. Um, so step one, please, if, if anyone is listening to this and once more from me, I am an open book and I will happily support you. And you already heard me say I do things for pro bono. So if you just want someone to talk to you for a hot minute, I'm in. Um, so that's step Very one. Very generous of you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, and as far as advice, one of the, I mean, I, you're right. I've, sh I've shared a lot of things along the way that are suggestions, but my biggest piece of advice is to be wildly curious during the process. 
because the things that I learned that stood out to me because I was curious and willing to let myself be curious are the things I use every day and the things that have allowed me to be successful and the things that allow me to run my own company and be my own independent consulting boss and now be looking at growing my company to add people to it because of my workload because I was curious and because I was not just curious about the research, which is important, but I was curious about the people that I was fortunate enough to be around. Watch people in the HDFS space exist. I know that sounds kind of funny, but the way that the people chose to exist and the way that they chose to honor themselves honor every human, even humans that were screaming at them. I, honest to God, can tell you I watched a parent scream at the director of the child development lab. Their fight, he was so, he was fighting. She was trying to be patient. The stress and pressure was so high that a blood vessel popped in her eye and her eye started getting red because it was filling up with blood. Oh. And she still listened to this individual and she still, as I'm observing this, gave him a space to be valued. That doesn't happen all over. But in the HDFS space, because of who chooses to be in that space, you are almost always guaranteed a masterclass in honoring the human experience. So I would tell students to pay attention to how their faculty interact with them, how the TAs interact with them. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to what feels really good about that experience and figure out how whatever career path you take, you convert that into your work moving forward. Mm. That's great advice. And you can have whatever path you want. The world will tell you a logical path is a straight line, but I will tell you as a ping pong ball, I have survived a path that made zero sense and I am happier than I have ever been as I sit in my professional space now. Oh yeah, very. It's okay to be a ping pong ball. Be a ping pong ball. That's be, right. Be a ping pong ball. I'm all about exploration. My, my students definitely know that I'm all about exploration, um, you know? Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, sure. This is this has been great. I, the thunder has now stopped. Oh, <laughs> so, of course, that's all right. Now that means now you can go out. And, you can go out and jump in puddles now. So it's good that the thunder happened while we were talking, so you could go out and do the fun stuff now that we're done. Look, that is the joyful response. Like, yes, that is <laughs> that is the perfect <laughs> response. Um, but I so appreciate you dealing with the, the technical and the, the weather and the child stomping around upstairs. I appreciate you um, bearing with me to, so that you can share your really powerful um, story and career with um, students. And I know it'll be an inspiration, especially to those who are looking for a way in which they can spend their days encouraging others. Chief Encouragement Officer, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. You bet. I'm so grateful to have spent some time with you. And I hope that you continue to challenge HDFS students to think about how to take what they've learned and, and personalize it and tailor it into the, the career and the life that they want. I think that, that what you're doing and how you're creating 
opportunities that may not otherwise exist for them to consider is a huge gift to them. And they may not realize it now, but um, this, this podcast and these discussions about all the different ways that you can take this information and turn it into something else is an incredible gift for students who don't want to pursue the traditional path, but like what they're learning about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate those kind words. I mean, yeah, I think everybody deserves um, to give themselves the chance to pursue what they really want to do. Like, yeah, I agree. And they need someone to cheer for them. And that's why I'm here. That's why you're here. (laughs) Yes, That is awesome. And I'm sure uh, thank you for, again for your generosity of having people reach out to you as well. I'll definitely link to your Instagram and so people can Great. reach out to you there. Yeah, I would love that. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Rakowski. Thanks, Erica. Have a great afternoon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the HDFS Careers Podcast. If you have recommendations for HDFS or other family science alumni to interview, please reach out to me at hdfscareers.com. Don't worry if they're not working in a job that would normally be considered in the field. I'm interested in hearing a variety of stories, especially if they're working outside of academia. If you like this podcast and want other people to be able to find it, please rate it and review it in iTunes or share it on social media. Until next time, keep exploring your future possibilities.